Welcome, everybody, to Tokens of Wisdom. I'm your host, Dave Rothschild, a partner at Cole Freeman & Mallon, a boutique law firm based in San Francisco with one of the leading private fund practices on the West Coast. Before we dive into the episode, like always, please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the show. Nothing I say here is legal investment or tax advice. Well, today we're going to talk about fund structuring considerations. Very exciting stuff. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground today with this umbrella topic, so make sure you step out of the pool, get out of the lake, because here comes the lightning round. We're going to look at fund structures from two different angles, because I think you have to consider both when you're thinking about how to structure your fund. First angle is, what is your fund investing in? Second angle is, who is investing in your fund? So the first angle, what is your fund investing in? You've probably heard private funds go by a variety of different names. You probably heard them called hedge funds venture capital funds, private equity funds, evergreen funds, open-ended funds, closed-ended funds, hybrid funds, maybe many more. I think we can all agree on one thing. That is too many names. Luckily, I'm here to simplify things for you. So these can all be boiled down into essentially three different buckets. The first bucket includes evergreen funds, open-ended funds, and hedge funds. These all mean the same thing, and they don't necessarily have anything to do with hedging or with trees. These are funds that invest in liquid assets. The second bucket is closed-ended venture capital or private equity funds. These invest in illiquid assets generally. The third bucket is hybrid funds. This is a catch-all term for funds that don't fit neatly into either of the two aforementioned buckets. So what's the primary structural distinction between these various types of fund? I'll give you a clue. It rhymes with schmiquidity. That's right. Liquidity! The first bucket, evergreen funds, hedge funds, open-ended funds, these are funds that generally invest in liquid assets. And as a result, they offer their investors somewhat regular liquidity. They're called evergreen or open-ended funds because they have no set life. They could theoretically go on forever with investors coming in and going out. And I say somewhat regular liquidity because evergreen funds often still carry liquidity restrictions of some kind. They might have lockup periods or gate mechanisms, etc. But as a general proposition, at some point, if you're an investor in an evergreen fund, you're going to have the ability to withdraw money. The second bucket, closed-end venture capital private equity funds, these all invest in illiquid assets. And as a result, they're structured so that investors can't withdraw their assets during the term of the fund. This makes sense, right? These funds hold illiquid assets. You can't just sell them to generate cash to satisfy a withdrawal request. And as a result, investors cannot withdraw. People often mistake venture capital funds and private equity funds, and that's probably because structurally, from a fund structure perspective, they look very similar. The difference is in their investment strategies and how they operate. Venture capital funds invest primarily in startup or early stage companies. They'll often spread smaller investments into many different companies, hoping to hit one or two big unicorns. Private equity funds, by contrast, take larger, often controlled positions in private companies, commonly ones that are not performing very well, and try to turn these businesses around. Both strategies require long harvest times, i.e. the time between when you make an investment and the time when you sell the investment, hopefully for profit. The managers of these types of funds invest the money and then help the companies become more valuable in the venture capital side by growing the business, on the private equity side by restructuring things or improving operations, and then they seek to exit the investment. Usually the exit scenarios are an IPO or some sort of sale transaction where the company you're investing in gets acquired. They're called closed-end vehicles because they have a set life, term. And there's a window of time early in their existence when investors can come in. And at no point during their existence can investors withdraw. 
unless a manager makes a specific exception. So the hybrid bucket, like I said, is just a catch-all for just about any other type of fund. It might mean an evergreen fund with unusually restrictive withdrawal mechanics like super long lockup periods, significant percentages of assets tied up in side pockets, etc. You actually see these fairly frequently in the digital asset world because a digital asset fund might have the broad investment strategy. It might invest in some SAFTs or some locked up tokens that they can't easily liquidate, but then also invest in liquid tokens and maybe some real estate in the metaverse and all these different assets have widely different liquidity profiles. And so you need something of a hybrid approach in order to accommodate them. You know, maybe you're a manager that's straddling the line here, where you're going to invest in some illiquid assets and some liquid assets, and you're not sure, you know, should this be more closed end or should this be open end? There's no great answer to that. There's always a push-pull between investors and the manager. The manager wants as much flexibility as possible to invest the assets the way it wants, and the investor wants the ability to pull their money out if the excrement hits the rotating blades, if you will. So you have a sense of your investment strategy, unless you know if you're going to use an open-ended fund, a closed-ended fund, or some sort of hybrid. Next question you need to answer when thinking about how to structure your fund is who is investing in your fund. For a U.S. fund manager, the basic structure for a fund vehicle is an entity based in Delaware, a Delaware limited partnership usually, though sometimes it's an LLC. It has a liability blocking entity, an LLC acting as its general partner, and then sometimes there might be a separate investment manager entity. Sometimes the general partner will serve that function as well. Management company structuring is a topic for another episode. The fund entity itself is a pass-through entity, which means the profits and losses flow through to its owners, the investors in the fund. If I'm an LP in your fund, at the end of the year, I'm going to get a K-1 statement that says how much profit the fund made, how much of it is allocable to me personally, and I have to report that on my income taxes, and I have to pay tax on those amounts. This standalone onshore fund structure works great if your investors are U.S. taxable investors. But what if you expect significant participation from non-U.S. investors or tax-exempt U.S. investors? Side note, for ease of speaking, I'm going to refer to non-U.S. investors and tax tax-exempt U.S. investors collectively as non-taxables. So I'm going to talk about U.S. taxable investors, and I'm going to talk about non-taxables, which generally will include non-U.S. investors and U.S. tax-exempt investors. So some non-taxables might be fine investing directly into a U.S. partnership. Maybe they are serial investors and they have structures in place on their end to accommodate investing directly in a U.S. partnership. But as a general rule, non-taxables prefer some kind of tax blocker entity, especially if your trading strategy might generate UBTI or ECI. Non-taxables don't want to receive a K-1. They don't want it going to the IRS. They don't want to file a tax return themselves. Usually what this means is adding some sort of offshore tax blocker vehicle in your fund structure. You form an entity offshore, it's often in the Cayman Islands or BVI, sometimes Bahamas. There are other jurisdictions, but I almost never see them. That offshore entity elects to be taxed as a corporation, and by doing so, it blocks the profit and loss from flowing through to its underlying owners. There is no income tax in these offshore jurisdictions so the entity itself doesn't actually pay any income tax. Okay, fine, but if your U.S. taxable investors are in one fund and your non-taxables are in another, how do they all participate in the same investments? Well, as my partner Scott Kitchens might say, that's a great question. There are two common ways to get them all to participate in the same investment. The first option is to have parallel funds. They invest side by side. Basically, anytime you're going to make an investment, you allocate a piece of it to the onshore fund, you allocate a piece of it to the offshore fund, and they each invest separately, but side by side, in parallel. This is relatively common in the closed-end space, where venture capital and private equity managers are making fewer investments. In the open-ended space, where a fund might be making tons of investments, might be frequently trading, this could be a real nightmare. You have to have brokerage accounts for each fund. You have to allocate trades evenly between the two different funds. The administrative expenses and general headache involved in doing that can really add up. 
So the second possible way, which is more common in the open-ended sort of hedge fund world, is to put these funds into some kind of master feeder relationship. There's two common options for how you do that. First option is called a full master feeder fund structure. You have your onshore limited partnership for U.S. taxables. You have your offshore blocker for non-taxables. And both of those funds invest all of their assets in a master fund that is formed offshore and that does the trading activity. It's called a master feeder because the two feeder funds feed all their assets into the master fund and the master fund is your trading vehicle. It opens the brokerage accounts, it makes the trades, and then things get allocated on its books based on the relative percentages that the two feeder funds own of the master fund. The second way is called a mini master feeder. As you might discern from the name, a mini master feeder is very similar to a master feeder, but smaller. That's what mini means. In a mini master feeder, you have an onshore limited partnership for your U.S. taxables, but that fund simultaneously acts as the master fund. It has the brokerage accounts, it makes the trade. Then you have an offshore blocker for non-taxables, and the offshore blocker invests all its assets in the onshore limited partnership. A mini master is cheaper and less of an administrative burden. After all, there's one fewer entity. It's mini, remember? Now, there might be some nuanced and specific tax reasons for you to choose one over another, but in the digital asset world, it's more and more common that people choose a full master feeder. Why would digital asset fund managers want a full master feeder instead of the cheaper mini master feeder? Well, if you go back and listen to episode eight, where we talked about trying to access non-US exchanges, you'll know that a lot of digital asset funds are trying to access exchanges that bar participation by US persons. And it's almost impossible to structure around that prohibition if you're filling out the application as a Delaware limited partnership. So there you have it. Super high level structuring decisions and pathways for private funds. As with most things, there's a ton of nuance and fact specific considerations. So when you're thinking about launching your fund, engage competent advisors, legal, tax, discuss with them, discuss your plans before you make any specific final decisions. Well, now that all that boring regulatory analysis is out of the way, it's time for the part you've all been waiting for. The legal disclaimer. In this show, I describe laws and regulations from a 10,000-foot view, and while this should be obvious to most, I need to say it nonetheless. This show is for informational purposes only, and nothing said here constitutes legal investment or tax advice. If you're thinking about starting a fund or you're curious about what's involved, this show is a good resource as you explore your options. But if you're going to pull the trigger and launch a fund, please engage an attorney to assist you. Thanks for listening to Tokens of Wisdom with Dave Rothschild. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends about us. Last but not least, if you have any questions about what we discussed today, feel free to send us an email at tow at colefreeman.com. Spelled out in the show notes. 